2: Hi, I'm Helen Arney.
1: I'm Steve Mould. I'm Matt Parker. And
0: you, you're a person listening to a podcast where we go into an unnecessary level of detail. Well, some people think it's unnecessary, not us. We think it's the appropriate amount of detail.
1: Today's episode is on the ones and twos. Disappointingly, I won't be spinning some of my favourite UK garage tracks over the next 45 minutes, but I will be talking about left-handed molecules and right-handed molecules. You know... For balance.
0: I will also not be rotating some of Steve's favourite garage tracks. I will be talking about the hardest working digits in mathematics. My fingers. No, I'll be talking about what we technically call small numbers.
2: And I will be sharing not one, but two of my songs.
1: First up, on the ones and twos, MC Matt Parker, Four to the Floor Flavours UK.
2: Matt, I'm guessing you have 1s and 2s.
0: I do. And most people would think there's only one 1 and only one 2. But I've taken the title to heart. I've got many 1s and many 2s. <laughs> because they're small numbers in maths, 1 and 2 pop up all the time. You constantly see 1s, you constantly see 2s, and it's not significant. So, for example, uh, two, 2 is the only number that is both prime And is even, which doesn't sound groundbreaking. But it just turns out, because two's small, it's in the collection of numbers that are primes, and it's in the collection of numbers that are even. That's the only one in both. And one is the only non-prime with fewer than three factors.
2: (laughs) Wait, what? hang on. What? what? I don't want to open a can of worms here, but... uh, Please do. Is one prime? Isn't it?
0: One is not prime open bracket depending on who you ask close
2: bracket okay I'll ask someone else then easy
0: well I mean I don't want to get ahead (laughs) of myself but I have the controversial opinion that five is the first prime and people get very upset about that exactly and it's for the very reason that I'm talking about now
1: which is the strong law of small numbers
2: It's not just a law of
1: numbers. It's a strong law. law. It's a strong law. I thought in mathematics things were either true or not. No, this is strongly true. true. Extra, (laughs) extra,
0: extra true.
2: Have they been listening to particle physicists and gone, right, you've got a strong force, a weak force. (laughs) A
0: weak force. We want
2: to get in on that. That sounds interesting.
0: Um, This law has uh, spin up.
2: There you are. Okay,
0: so the guy who came up with this Actually, I've met the guy who came up with this, and I can say Guy. I'm not using that as like a gendered term. His name is Guy. Richard Guy. Literally. The guy (laughs) who came up with this. Richard Guy. um, Who uh, passed away quite recently, but he was doing mathematics for a very long time. I introduced him when he was giving a talk, and he was 99 years old at the time. Still got up. Fired up his PowerPoint. Clicking through some maths he'd come up with recently. Wow.
2: that is amazing a 99 year old on the ones and twos yeah,
0: on the ones and twos he w- he was up and around he was m- more movement on stage than some other much younger speakers at that conference so richard guy in the very late 1980s when he was you know a young young mathematician in his late 60s um <laughs> came up with the strong law. Lo- and I- i'll be honest the strong because uh, he's a funny guy the- I'm going to keep saying Guy and I'm going to I'm going to chuckle every time. I'm going to stop pointing it out from here in. So Richard Guy, uh, he's, he's got a sense of humor. I don't know. This is my speculation. I think he's making fun partly of like scientists who have strengths of laws and laws get superseded. But there is a thing called the law of small numbers. In fact, there's a law of big numbers. There's also a strong law of big numbers, but it's all in statistics. So he's more making fun of the fact than statistics. And you can add the strong law is like the same statement, but more restrictive or more precise.
2: Strong means like narrowing the definition. Yeah,
0: Strongly large powerful. numbers.
1: It's a law about yeah. strongly large numbers. No, Not it's strongly a
0: law. It's numbers. a strongly a law about uh, numbers of any strength. <laughs> okay. The strong law of small numbers is... There aren't enough small numbers to meet the many demands made of them.
2: What? Wow.
0: Which is to say, we have a lot of properties, we have a lot of rules, a lot of relationships, a lot of patterns in mathematics, and the vast majority of them start at the beginning of the numbers and then work their way up. And because there are so many things in maths that all start with small numbers, we're just asking small numbers to do a lot, and there's not that many of them. And once you get to big numbers... They're spaced out. The primes never again overlap with the even numbers. The non-primes never overlap with the fewer than three factors crowd, right? Plenty of room. But when it comes to the small numbers, there's just not enough of them to go around. And so you get a lot of overlap.
2: They're like the hospital administrators of the number world. People just expect them to be able to do everything that's handed to them, no matter how challenging it is. Because everyone else has got a tough job as well, right? I I get it, but someone's got to do all of the stuff to support everyone else. And if they don't do it, the whole thing falls apart. They're being asked too much.
1: It's like if you noticed that there was three of something in mathematics, you couldn't call it the Parker constant because three is used for so many things. You couldn't sort of...
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, bad example, great point. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Thanks. <laughs> and there is there is something called I think it's the Lagrange constant, which is uh it was named before it was calculated, and it turns out it's one.
2: So, <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, yeah. They named it going. There, there's some constant. It it it's got these properties. It turns out it was the number one the whole time.
2: Oh, that's.
1: I'm never saying one again. <laughs> I'm always saying the Lagrange constant from now on. Exactly. I think it's Lagrange. How many I'll how many that. sugars in your tea? Uh, Lagrange constant. Uh, just the Lagrange constant. Of, yeah.
2: <laughs> Do we have to rename this episode now, on the Lagrange constant and and, and twos? Yeah. The twos. And, yeah.
0: Well, there are probably some hipster people who have renamed twice the Lagrange constant or some rubbish. <laughs> <Who knows? laughs>
2: So it's on the Lagrange constant and twice the Lagrange constant. That's appalling.
0: (laughs) And this is also why I think prime should start at five, because the numbers below that, just they're, they're only prime because there were small numbers that were in the way. Right. It's like all prime numbers are one more or one less than a multiple of four other than two.
1: Come on, two? Get with it. Seems like a more complicated <laughs> definition. Yeah. Uh, all Why, primes, five? Uh, Why five, though? Why not seven? Uh, I, I use
0: five, partly because there are loads of things like, you know, all primes are one more or one less than a multiple of six, other than two and three. Ah, okay. All prime numbers squared are one more than a multiple of 24, apart from two and three. So the reason I don't really like two and three, there are no composite numbers smaller than them. And so they oh, there just yeah. aren't enough numbers yet to have factors. That's why they're prime. There's there's not enough numbers yet. Whereas five is the first prime bigger than a composite.
1: Yeah. It's bigger than
0: four. And so I'm like, okay, five conceivably could have factors, but it doesn't. You know, it's it's deliberately prime. Whereas two and three are only prime because they're too small to have factors. So that's yeah, that's my I see what you mean. I call one, two and three, or maybe just two and three, I call them the sub subprimes.
2: But, like, sub can be a positive thing. Like, a subwoofer is definitely... That's true. ...better than a woofer. Oh,
0: it can be great. It's just different. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah.
2: They've got that whole own properties that are, are more useful in other, other ways.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying we do away <laughs> with the ones and twos.
2: Oh, I'm just saying. Oh, we really have to rename this episode.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, this does lead me to the second... Strong law of small numbers Oh wow, okay There's the first, uh, again Ones and twos, there's the first strong law of small numbers Retrospectively given This title of first When guy ca- some guy came up with The second strong law Of small numbers <laughs> Which is When two numbers look equal It ain't necessarily so And so this is the, the Kind of the follow on So, this is almost the consequence of the first strong law of small numbers. And that's when you see two things give the same numbers. It doesn't mean they're really the same numbers. It just means they happen to be the same because they're small, not because of anything, you know, mathematical going on behind the scenes. So, for example, if you want to stack barrels, like, I don't know, whiskey barrels or something, and you know you can... Like, if you've got two barrels next to each other, you could stack a third one on top. So if you keep track of how many ways you can arrange barrels as you're stacking them, if you've got one barrel, it's just there's only one way. You've got to put it down on the side. That's it. If you've got two barrels, there's only one way. You put them next to each other. That's it. Mm -hmm. If you've got three barrels, suddenly you've got a choice. Third barrel could go on top or it could go next to them. So there there are two ways to arrange three barrels. If you've got four barrels... We, you could have all four on the ground. You could have three of them on the ground and one up on the top on the left or one up on the top on the right. And so there are, there are three ways. And if you've got five barrels, then there are five ways. And if you've got six barrels, there are eight ways. It's the Fibonacci numbers.
1: What? Fibonacci? I,
0: each time what? you add another barrel, the number of ways you can arrange them goes one, one, two, three, five, eight.
2: No. Nice.
0: And then twelve. Oh. Which is which is not a Fibonacci number. That's not right. No. And then eighteen, which is that's, horribly wrong.
1: That's not.
0: It only matches for the first six cases. <sighs> but, but it's so convincing for those six, you're like, man, that's that's really convincing. And that is
2: cosmic. That is karmic. It's There's it's a co- it's a coinky dink. dink.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and it's a really alluring because it feels like it's a Fibonacci kind of situation. So for people who have done lots of math puzzles and these things, it feels so Fibonacci. You're arranging things. Other ones are more obvious. Like the powers, the powers of one and a half, if you round them down to the <laughs> nearest whole number, give you all, give you all the primes. No. no. One and a half to the power of one, round it down, gives you one. To the power of two, no. gives you two. Power of three is three. Power of four is five. Power of five gives you seven. Power of six gives you eleven.
2: Sign me up to this cult now. Uh,
0: and then, then, and then it stops working. That's not. Uh. <laughs> but, but you are suspicious immediately. You're like, there is no way the powers of one and a half are going to give you all the prime numbers. That's ridiculous.
2: I bet if you carry on for long enough, it will give you another prime number, and then you'll be like, ooh.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, just when you looked away. And there are other crazy ones. Like if you have uh, E, the number E, to the power of N minus 1 on 2, and you round it up to the nearest whole number, and you start working your way through the values of N, that gives you Fibonacci, but it goes all the way up. 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, then it breaks. Wow. So, And again, Ugh. grinky dink.
2: But by so, then, it's been burnt as a witch, so it's too exactly, late. Exactly,
0: exactly, yeah. yeah. So the the law of the strong law of small numbers is partly fun in maths, just to say, hey, bear in mind, like it's a weird quirk of small numbers. They pop up all the time because there aren't many small numbers, so they've got to do a lot of jobs each. They've a lot of job sharing with the small numbers because it's a very small workforce. <laughs> yeah, it's worth bearing in mind that you can't trust small numbers in general. Like you know. Uh, 10% of the first 100 numbers are perfect squares, but that doesn't carry on. You know, a quarter of the numbers below 100 are prime, but that doesn't carry on, right? It's just because we're only looking at the small numbers. And then the second law is reminding you, if you see patterns, you can't just assume they're going to keep happening. And in that regard, small numbers doesn't just refer to like the ones and twos. Pretty much anything can be a small number if you try hard enough. Because there are so many patterns in maths That look like they work for absolutely ages So before I said I'll talk about prime. all prime numbers Are one more or one less Than a multiple of four It looks like m- More primes Are one less than a multiple of four than, than one greater than a multiple of four And that's true Up until 26,861 And that's when it flips to be the other way around. And there are other uh. things in maths which are true, like, I mean, again, this is... I mean, I, I haven't got a practical example like stacking barrels or something here. But if you compare n to the power of 17 plus 9 to n plus 1 to the power of 17 plus 9, they are relatively prime always. Except once you get up <laughs> into the... Sex decillions, fifty two digit numbers. That, that the first time that what? fails is a number that starts eight, four, two, four, four, and that has fifty two digits. And that's that's, that's the first counterexample. Every other example up until then works.
2: So the rule of small numbers is a rule that can take you up to fifty two digits or more. We just haven't yeah. we just haven't found something yet.
1: Exactly. Who knows? Is that the best example? Is it or the worst example? of a rule that keeps working for a very long time and then breaks.
0: I reckon you could prove that you could construct such a rule for arbitrarily large numbers. I, yeah,
1: that, I is, suppose,
0: yeah. that is the biggest common example I see passed around, but I have seen people give a talk. I think a mathematician called David um, Atchison, that we both know, has yeah. a bigger example in one of his talks david atchison if people want to look it up but there's i mean never trust examples is the short way to put this in maths because examples are misleading you need you need proof
1: it reminds me of the tau versus pi debate it's well known that i'm an advocate of uh, using tau instead of pi for the circle constant because it simplifies mathematics tau is just two times pi Um, it comes from the ratio of the radius of a circle to its Circumference, whereas pi comes from the ratio of the diameter to the circumference. Anyway, one argument for tau that I've given in the past is like if you look at simple equations that involve pi and tau, one argument that people give for pi is so, like, look at this beautiful equation, the area of a circle is pi r squared, but Great whereas if it was tau, it would have to be a half tau r squared. And my rebuttal of that is that actually the equation. A half tau r squared has this uh, meaning to it. The half means something. It tells you something about the equation. It tells you that it comes from an integration. Like, you know, when you integrate something, you raise the power and then you divide by the new power. So the x, so the r squared, and you have a t- you have the, the two at the bottom of the half, that comes from the fact that to calculate the area of a circle, you've, you've done an integration over r. Like kinetic energy is half mv squared, for example the V squared and the half comes from the fact that you had to do an integration to get there. Whereas if you use pi uh, in your equations, then it masks that. It it masks that structure that you can see where it came from. Though from everything you said, Matt, you know, the strong rule of small numbers, maybe that two or that half was doing something else and you actually can't use it in that way. I hate to say it, but it kind of ruins my argument about uh, (laughs) the power of tau in that particular (laughs) scenario.
2: (laughs) Steve, have you, if you've ever considered a career in law, I just, I'm so glad you didn't go into it. <laughs> I, just, I just, just imagine you in court, just going, "So, I would like to defend this person, who I shall now show is completely guilty."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want me on the defence.
2: If we rename this episode, there are a lot of options. So we can call it "On the Ones and Tows."
1: <laughs> yes, that's my uh, Steve's preferred
2: option. Or uh, Matt, I think your preferred option would probably be "On the." one with 52 zeros after it to the twos with 52 zeros <laughs> <laughs> after it. <laughs> just to clarify how big small numbers uh, really can be.
0: That's the level of precision I like. So, Steve, how big are your small numbers?
1: <laughs> They're literally ones and twos. It's just oh. ones and twos. Right? That is Good, a relief.
2: I'm, honestly, Thank I'm very you. pleased.
1: Now, this relates really well to the title. I want to talk about molecules. Pick any molecule... That molecule will either have one type or two types.
0: Can I just say, that sounds like the beginning of the worst magic trick ever.
1: (laughs) Pick a molecule, any molecule. (laughs) Steve rubs his temples. Was it methane? Um, (laughs) Was this
0: your molecule? And you're like, no, because my molecule (laughs) comes in two types. And that's the other one.
1: Take methane, for example. There is only one type of methane, there's just methane. Glucose, on the other hand, there are two types of glucose. Imagine this, imagine you're trying to make the letter L and you've got four little magnetic cubes. You stack three of them on top of each other to make a little tower, and then you bring the fourth one in and it just snaps onto that bottom one, right? And then you knock it over, it falls onto your desk and you're like, ah, damn, it's a J, I wanted an L. then you think oh wait hold on a second i'll flip it over and there you go there's your l great but now imagine instead what you're after you're not after the letter l you're after (laughs) the left hand of a mannequin right i know that's very different (laughs) just bear with me
2: if one of those landed on my desk i would be like that is surprising
1: yeah but even worse what lands on your desk is the right hand of a mannequin and you're like damn, I wanted the left hand of a mannequin. So you have the same idea. You think, I'll just flip it over. There you go. No. But it doesn't work. It's still the right hand of a mannequin. It doesn't become the left hand. And this is true of actual hands as well. You can check this with your hands, right? (laughs) Flip over your left hand. It doesn't become a right hand,
0: right? I feel like your definition of flip over is insufficiently precise.
1: Bob, please enlighten me. Well,
0: if if you could flip it over in the fourth dimension, you would get...
1: We're not doing it in the fourth dimension, Matt. It's never...
0: Hey, (laughs) you make everything about magnets. I make everything about the fourth dimension.
2: (laughs) We're on the ones and twos and threes and fourth dimensions today.
1: Okay. I'm just going to say this once and then it'll be true for the rest of the podcast. Okay. (laughs) Unless I specify the number of dimensions, it's three.
0: (laughs) Oh, is that... All episodes or just the All one?
1: episodes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> huh. Unless I'm talking about drawing on paper. Look, just get it from context, okay? <laughs> I shouldn't have to say it. <laughs> so, the difference between the letter L that you made out of cubes and the right hand of a mannequin is that one is chiral and the other one isn't. To be more specific, like, if you got the little L that you made and put it in front of a mirror and looked at the thing in the mirror, it would be a J, but you could make that J with the actual object itself just by changing the orientation of it. Whereas if you put the mannequin's hand in front of the mirror, you couldn't make the thing in the mirror just by reorienting the actual physical thing that you have. Another name for chirality is handedness because of the fact that it's true for hands. So you can talk about this molecule is the left-hand version of the molecule. This molecule is the right-hand version of the molecule because it's also true for molecules you can get molecules that are fundamentally different in the mirror. In other words, a molecule that you can't orient to create the mirror image of itself.
2: What is that? Okay, so chiral, like this is a whole new word for me and I have no idea how you even spell it. I'm going to pretend I'm my five-year-old and I'm going to be like K-Y-R-Y-L. Like, is that it?
1: Well, I mean, you're talking to me. I'm dyslexic, so let's just say yes it doesn't matter it's how you say it that counts that's what i always how do you
2: google it steve how do you google it
1: it's c h it starts c h c c h e i r a l
2: oh no what? Well, i'm googling it and you're all wrong you're all wrong c h i r a l
1: what's really interesting is like if you try and make a molecule like sugar in a factory or in the lab just using chemistry you know mixing the raw ingredients together you tend to end up with a 50 50 mix of the right-handed version and the left-handed version but the sugar that we find in nature is all the right-handed version What? what isn't that amazing the reason we call it right-handed instead of left-handed is because of what it does to light specifically polarized light if you shine polarized light through a solution of sugar, it will rotate the direction of the polarized light to the right, not to the left.
0: <gasps> but only natural occurring sugar. If you had Naturally like 50-50 sugar. Yeah. sugar, it would just be all over the place.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. That's always something I could never understand, the idea that a solution of sugar would rotate polarized light in a specific direction. Because you think, well, these molecules are all oriented in different directions. Surely any rotation to the left would be cancelled out by rotation to the right. And so a solution of sugar shouldn't be able to rotate light. But it can, because you imagine one molecule will rotate light that passes through it like a little bit. If you want to rotate it the other way, you need the exact mirror image of that molecule, but you don't have it in a solution of sugar because all the sugar that we get comes from nature and it's all right-handed.
2: So it's like the natural sugar is a right-handed corkscrew, exactly. like bending the light one way and to get it to bend the other way, you'd have to have a left spiraling corkscrew. I'm just trying to think of physical things that have a left or right hand.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. Like if you take a corkscrew and turn it upside down, the spiral is still going in the same way.
2: It's still a right-handed corkscrew, yeah. Yeah,
1: the only way to flip it would be with a mirror. What's interesting is that for the vast majority of molecules in nature, they only have one of the handednesses. So all sugar in nature is right-handed, all DNA is left-handed, all amino acids are left-handed. With a few exceptions, all chiral molecules that you find in nature are always one way and never the other and this is called homochirality and actually i mean it's not just nature that's homochiral screws generally speaking are homochiral <laughs> which was useful like if you bought a box of screws and half of them went one way half of them went the other that saying righty tighty lefty loosey would only be right half the time <laughs> it would be really annoying
2: that would be arbitrary depending on which one you picked out.
1: Yeah. I also discovered that fusilli pasta is generally homochiral. Generally, <laughs> like with a very few exceptions, when you go to the supermarket, you might find one obscure brand of fusilli pasta that goes the other way.
0: So within a packet they're all the same chirality. Yeah. Yeah. Across multiple packets they're largely the same chirality. Yes. But not completely. Cuz yeah. like some hipster pasta manufacturer. It's like,
1: no, you can go the other way. I've never found a packet of silly Pasta that has a mix inside the packet.
0: Now, I imagine mm. the pasta probably tastes the same either way. Yeah. If yeah. we like ate left-handed sugar, would it taste the same or would that be a different taste?
2: Oh, that's a good
1: question. It's a really good question. And it just so happens that... Left-handed sugar does stimulate sweetness receptors. Hey. But it can't be metabolized for <gasps> the energy content. Huh? So left-handed sugar would actually be a really good sweetener.
0: Yeah, I've just had a patent idea.
1: <laughs> People have tried. It's incredibly difficult to make oh. left-handed sugar.
0: Talk to the pasta folks. They've cracked it. <laughs>
2: But is that true for all of these chiral molecules Because I've heard a thing about some flavors, they're they're mint if they're left-handed and strawberry if they're right-handed. I don't know, is is that a thing?
1: Yeah, that's definitely a thing. I mean, you know, well, the question, why is nature homochiral is a good one. And actually sugar is probably a good way to explain why you might find nature to be that way. Like it's about efficiency. You know, if there was a 50-50 mix of the two types of sugar, you would need a 50-50 mix of the enzymes for metabolizing that sugar. And that's inefficient to code for the two types, but it's also inefficient from the point of view of molecules bumping into Mm. each other. Half the time you'll have the wrong sugar bumping into the wrong metabolizing molecule, whatever that is, I don't know the name. (laughs) Um, I feel like we just found the edge of your biological knowledge.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, It goes a little bit further, but we're really in the dark now. We're really sort of stumbling around with the lights off. So, yeah, it makes sense for the molecular system within an individual organism to all be lined up and, and agree on doing it one way or the other.
2: So whatever organism is eating that sugar has the matching enzyme in their digestive system to metabolize that sugar
1: yeah huh. that
2: does make sense
1: yeah but then it also makes sense for all organisms to be the same you know you if you had a pocket of organisms that do it differently they don't have the same access to nutrients as the the larger population because most of the sugar that they come across is they can't digest for example
0: actually there is one way to digest it oh hang on are we still strictly three dimensions
1: Strictly three dimensions, but if you want to go to a higher dimension. No, if you want to go... Ignore ignore what I was going
0: to say. It's not going to work.
1: One area where it's really important to be able to make the right-handedness of molecule is in medicine because it turns out with certain drugs, one-handedness of the molecule does one thing, the other-handedness does something else. A harmless example is ibuprofen, when you manufacture ibuprofen, you get 50% left handed, 50% right handed. It's only one that actually does anything useful. The other one is completely useless. So when you take ibuprofen, half of what you're taking doesn't do anything. Ah. Because it's cheaper not to filter it out. The process of filtering out one of the enantiomers, as they're called, is expensive.
0: Just take twice as much. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Take twice as much. Um, That's baked into
0: the pills. I should make that very clear. You, the pills yeah. are the right uh, yeah, amount.
1: Yeah, no, d- don't take twice as many ibuprofen as it says on the packet. Yeah. They've already worked that out for you. thought <laughs> so we should just clarify that. Yeah.
0: And if you're in the fourth dimension, take half as much.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the sixth dimension... Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs>
2: in the sixth dimension, you've got bigger problems.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, one example I quite like is meth. So... The mirror image of meth is uh, a decongestant nasal spray. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So in the manufacturing of it, how do you separate the two? So you've made a whole load of decongestant nasal spray, but half of it is meth. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? Basically, you have to fall back on nature. So you have to find an enzyme in nature that binds to the thing that you don't want. And then you chop out the bit of DNA that codes for that, you put it inside a bacteria, you breed the bacteria, then you get the enzymes out, and then you use that to latch onto the thing you don't want so you're left with the thing that you do want. It's a very expensive process, but it can be worth it for really effective drugs where the mirror image is dangerous.
2: Sorry, the, the, so you're manufacturing a bacteria that eats meth and leaves behind nasal decongestant?
1: That's right. Loves its job. <laughs> What all this means is if you went through some portal and ended up in a mirror version of the universe...
0: I know how that could happen. I know how that could happen. (laughs) But it's not allowed.
2: Matt's just realized he's supposed to have been taking notes for this whole thing, because this stuff could be useful to him after all.
0: You could just uh, pop through the fourth dimension.
2: Carry on.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'd like to know the details, but basically, yeah. So if you ended up in a mirror universe... You couldn't digest any sugars. There'd be issues with proteins. Any way that your body interacts with chiral molecules in nature would be screwed, and you'd end up getting sick. But how, you can't just say the fourth dimension, Matt, and suddenly we're in a mirror universe. No, but if you
0: were in a mirror universe, then you could just go and get some nasal spray <laughs> and at least have a great time. <laughs>
1: Well, we've done the ones and twos. What's left?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, More ones and twos. (laughs) I wanted to share something with you and with our listeners, uh, which is actually a work in progress. It's something I started during lockdown. I started writing a mini musical based on a children's book in order to try and keep myself sane and to keep my daughter homeschooled at the same time. It's very multi-purpose, you Mm. could say, two part project that's where the No, it's literally all about the ones and twos because it's a mini musical based on a book called hello numbers by um, some people that I think uh, you know at least one of them it's got two authors but I know one it has got two authors but you only know one of them I mean
0: one of the twos
2: yeah We're so on brand. It's unbelievable. It's
0: just more numbers. Uh, um, But
2: it's got an illustrator as well, which makes it three. Ruins everything. Uh, So it's by Edmund Harris, uh, who's a mathematician. Houston Hughes, who's a a, um, writer and a musician and illustrated by Brian Ray. And it is a counting book for children. I love it. My daughter loves it. So far, my son enjoys chewing it, which is a good start. (laughs) So, you know, there's potential there. And one of the reasons I love it is that I think... Although it's a counting book, it has the potential to become a miniature musical with a plot and a storyline and characters, right? Because there is this big, strong streak of of educational philosophy within what is essentially a children's book.
0: You say mini-musical. Yeah. What percentage of a musical? Like, what is it just, (laughs) it's really quiet, (sighs) it's got fewer characters, it's over in 10 minutes. Yeah, like, what makes it mini
1: how many dimensions is it in
2: it's a work in progress so it could be any and all of these oh, all of them. Uh, <laughs> as yet so in this multi-dimensional mini musical I'm gonna put put it straight out there it's going to involve several dimensions the thing I like about this book is that it's a counting book but it's not just about counting for the sake of counting right I have a lot of counting books my children have a lot of counting books but This isn't one where it's all about just learning the words, you know, one, two, three, four, in the right order, like a memory game, like a song, like an opportunity to have nice pictures of different quantities. There's a bit more to it than that. For starters, Matt, and this is why I know you'll like it, it starts with zero.
0: There you go. Mm. Perfectly good number.
2: It's so rare to have a book that starts with zero and tries to build on the fundamentals of what numbers mean, not just what they look like when you draw different quantities. So it only covers the first few numbers, up to about six, I think, but it kind of plays with those numbers as well. So as you're reading the book, you start making connections between things that these numbers can actually do not just how they sound as words and what quantities they represent so with number one it investigates how you can move around in space and if you're just one you can move in any direction you can move up and down and left and right but it also addresses the fact that that is completely meaningless if you don't have another one to measure the relative distances or the context or Um, one without another basically doesn't mean anything you can go anywhere in space but also you are anywhere in space if you have no context so that that's quite a mind-blowing concept for page three of (laughs) of this book
0: i assume the pages start at zero as well
2: yeah (laughs) but you know what i haven't checked that and if it doesn't i think they need to reprint page
0: three the fourth (laughs) page
2: and maths is about not just what the numbers sound like and what the quantities are, but what you can do with them. So every page of this book has something that happens with these numbers. You start on number two and it's about drawing a line between two points. It's about symmetry. It's about mirror reflections. I mean, Steve, we should have had a quick look at this book before you started on chirality because I'm pretty pretty sure there would have been some context to enjoy there. And it starts having fun with um, all the things that you can do with two. Like you can go around something you can go over something you go under something and then you start on three and there's triangles and angles and four is quadrilaterals and different shapes you can make it's never just about counting even though it's kind of a counting book and it starts going to stuff like division and number bonds and remainders and things that you don't start getting to until you're in reception class at school like primary school like junior Mm. school you don't start learning about this stuff but it's all in there and the numbers themselves are adorable they're these little coloured blobs with faces and there's something important about them all being the same kind of object rather than being different things for each number like you get other county books and you get one pineapple and then on the next page you've got two pears and then you've got three satsumas and that feels like a different principle from one leads on to two leads on to three of the same conceptual object or type of thing or or thought or element, right
0: mm. i mean that's the basis of uh, mathematics that you can abstract counting yeah. a- away from it's objects.
2: definitely not arbitrary i've talked to edmund about this and it's not arbitrary that they all look the same it's a definite choice because it is trying to get across these fundamental relationships between counting and quantities and shapes and objects in space and creating this really firm foundation before you start doing the next stage of mathematics so far working on this project I've got approximately 200,000 pages of notes and research and five songs Um, I've recorded two of them just for this podcast I've done kind of nice demo versions with me singing all the parts Uh, guess which songs they are from the full range of infinite numbers available.
1: Uh, The ones and twos.
2: Yes!
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're on brand.
2: I'm so on brand. There is plenty of detail about one and two in these songs. And uh, with any luck, you're going to be singing them for the rest of time because I've tried to make them as catchy as heck as well. And uh, if anyone is listening and wants to turn this into some kind of mini album or animated youtube series or family musical at the edinburgh fringe like i don't know what this could be but any of those things
1: or the west end yeah okay. could,
2: i mean yeah i'm not sure yeah. if the west end is ready for number theory uh, phew, yeah. <laughs> if anyone would like to uh, join me in helping create something out of this then i'll be over here trying to find 15 new rhymes for zero because that song isn't finished yet
0: <laughs> how many times can you use the the o from surprise what are you drinking a beer. Oh,
2: yeah, that yeah. definitely a lot of potential in that one.
0: What's that running around your backyard? A steer. Oh, <laughs> I mean this. The format
2: is endless. Is
0: very flexible.
2: U.S. actress Millie Shapiro. Okay, fine. <laughs> I just started Googling at one point uh, <laughs> rhymes for <laughs> zero. If anyone wants to help me out, please do. I think we should just play the songs, and everyone can enjoy a song called one and a song called two, and see if you all enjoy some number theory in musical form. One is a person or a place or a thing. One head on your shoulders, one note that you sing. You could use the word it, but there's another way. When you're counting, one's what you say. There you go. That was me, literally, on the ones and twos. Thank you for listening. Now, Helen, as
0: always, I hate to be uh, Captain Counting Things, but earlier on, you said you were going to sing two songs, <laughs> and yeah. that was only one song, which is a smaller number of songs than two songs.
1: Well, yeah, but aside from that, it also seems that like you got a lot better at playing the drums
2: than I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, fine, fine. Okay, like a lot of things over the last couple of years, recording the final version of that second song, which was about the number two, it it got cancelled due to COVID. <laughs> it's tough
1: I'm for sorry. everyone.
2: Tough for everyone. Yeah. But, so I I kind of focused on just getting one of the songs finished properly uh, and i had to recruit some help to do that i asked one of my musical theater writing partners the brilliant composer and arranger james hughes uh, to give me a hand and he did all of the instrumental stuff all of the instruments you hear played on that track that's all him and he's the one who's turned it from this little demo into an adorable little song about the number one that i would not have been capable of doing myself we are still working on song number two but i have no idea when we'll get it done i'll be honest
1: Well, that's fine. It's to be continued.
2: Well, get
0: out. (laughs) That's funny because our two is a homonym. Anyway, if we're talking about successful collaborations, I feel like now is a very good time to mention that we are part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: Yeah, so natural. Thank you. If you want even more details and justifications, check out... Everything we added to the show notes, it's linked down there in the podcast description. We've even worked out what Matt meant when he kept saying Lagrange constant. It's so close. Well, it, it took a while. And we're still not sure we got it right, but it's there in the show notes. Anyway, we'd love it if you could rate
0: and review us on iTunes if you have a moment in your life for that. It does make a big difference to how many people get to hear about this podcast and how many episodes we'll get to make in the future.
2: And if you have any more unnecessary detail for us or just want to get in touch about anything you've heard, our email is podcast at nerd.com. and we're on all the social medias. So come find us and say hi. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. A podcast of unnecessary detail is made by Festival of the Spoken Nerd. That's Helen Arney, Steve Mould and Matt Parker. Our series producer is Lindsay Fenner. This episode was produced by John Harvey and edited by Clarissa Maycock. Our theme music is by Howard Carter and we're proud to be part of the Acast Creator Network. Thanks for listening.